are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners. Uh, We are going to be hitting Luke chapter 19 today. If you have been following along with us throughout this entire podcast series over the book of Luke, uh, we have gone in so many different directions, hit so many different topics, um, that sometimes it's, it's really difficult for me to kind of just narrow down on one thing um, and really hammer that home. But if there is something, as I talked about in Luke chapter 18, if there is one thing that God continues to seem to hammer home is this concept of humility. And I talked about that at length in the previous podcast that I did over Luke chapter 18. And it's going to kind of stay even into the theme of everything in Luke chapter 19 as we go into this one. But there's going to be a little bit more of spiritual foreshadows that I'm going to talk about in this one. Um, but in verses 1 through 10, there's going to be a lot of practical wisdom that deals with the concept of humility, which again, as described by Paul in Philippians 2, is counting others more significant than yourself. So as you understand what humility is, is that not only are we counting the mission of, of God that we have in this life to testify to the gospel of grace, to the glory of Jesus Christ, and to the, the glory of God himself, um, That is counting his mission of greater value than ours. It's counting his life of greater value than our own. It's also something to be hammered out and lived out in counting other people more significant than ourselves. So ultimately it comes down to humility is the basis of love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself, right? It's the humility that's played out in how we love God and count him more significant and how we love others and count them more significant. And we're going to see a man named Zacchaeus who seemed to get that. And Jesus says something very profound to him that I want us to understand because humility is the language of heaven. It's something that I've heard before and it's something that I agree with. When you, If you look at it as a language like a known language of man, like English or whatever, then maybe that doesn't make any sense. But it's, language is not just constituted with what you say. Sometimes you have body language. There's all kinds. I think there's four different types of languages that we have as men or as mankind. And body language is one of them. And so humility is a language of heaven. It's how we show that heaven is in us. And that's going to make sense in a second. Starting in verse 1, he says, He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. 
So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, which, by the way, chief tax collectors typically had defrauded a lot of people, I restored fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, um, specifically meaning of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what he told a Gentile woman who was wanting to eat the scraps, right, from the table as a dog would do. He says, I came to seek and save the lost house of the, of the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In this passage, you're going to see a lot of things at work here. One of them is um, the persistence of Zacchaeus to say, I'm not going to let my physical limitations get in the way of seeing Jesus. Um, which I think is a story in and of itself and a lesson in and of itself. But one of the things you also see here is you see that there was people who grumbled at the sense of him being a guest in the house of a sinner. And their, in their understanding, this was a man who was a chief tax collector, who was a fellow Jew who had betrayed them, right? Then he said that he was also of the house of Abraham. So Zacchaeus was a Jew. And he was a chief tax collector working for Rome that had betrayed the brotherhood of being a Jew. So he was hated. And so they looked at Jesus as coming into his house as this thing of like, man, what are you doing, dude? This is a betrayer of Israel. This is a sinner. This is somebody you shouldn't be even fellowshipping with. And yet, Zacchaeus was repentant because he was trying to see Jesus. And Jesus saw that. And I don't think that anything should preclude us from going to be a guest in the house of somebody who might be a sinner, but is showing signs of repentance. If somebody is showing the signs that they want something more, they want Jesus, they want the man, who are we to ever um, stay our hand from, from hearing a person out and going to go see, seeking to lead them into that repentance? Um, and the Pharisees were those who, they weren't going to look at what this guy was doing, they were going to look at what he had did, or what he had done. I'm sorry, proper um, grammatic structure there. But here's the thing. Zacchaeus comes in there, and he's meeting with Jesus, and they're having their conversation. And Zacchaeus, on his own accord, comes to Jesus, and he says, Look, I get it. I get it. My treasure is not the things of this earth, and I've been living my life for all the wrong reasons and in the wrong ways. So Jesus, I'm not doing this because I feel like it's a mandated thing. I'm doing this because I feel like I don't need to have these attachments to the world anymore to, to feel like I have value and identity because I found that in you. And obviously I'm adding some to this and, and what the conversation was. But I'm going to tell you, based off of what I see in this, this is exactly his mentality. He comes to him and he seems excited to tell him half of my goods. And he was a very rich man. Half of it I've given away. Half of my goods I gave to people who were in need. And then he says, and what was left over? If there was anything I defrauded somebody, I paid them back four times the amount. I don't need this stuff anymore. I found you. You're my treasure. And I don't need this stuff anymore. And I think that Jesus' response to him is very telling. He says, today salvation has come to this house. He said, you get it. You understand. I see the evidence of it. Let me just tell you. If you say that you're a follower of Jesus, but you live in luxury, 
you're living it up for yourself and maybe you're generous to a degree. Maybe you give 20%. But if you're, if you're living it up in luxury and self-indulgence, let me just tell you, James 5 says that those things that you're living in, they're going to be evidence against you on the last day. Because you can't say that your heart is truly sold out for Jesus when you're living it up in this life. It's impossible. Jesus says today salvation has come to this house because Zacchaeus, you get it. You get what it's all about. It doesn't mean that God wants us to go without and be completely without everything that this life could ever afford us. doesn't mean that if you, if you have a car that you're in sin. You go, oh no, you have a car that's more than food, drink, and clothing. That's not what he says. It's what car do you have? What's your aim in life? What house do you have? Are you seeking to live it up? Are you having a 3,500 square foot home with two people? Now, come on. It's all about what are you seeking as your aim. And I can tell you where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And I don't say that. That's what Jesus says in Luke twelve thirty four. So if you're storing up your treasures here in this life, then that's where your heart truly is. There's no way around that. Zacchaeus, Jesus saw that his heart had been given to him. His heart had changed. There was a work of grace that had been done in Zacchaeus' heart. He no longer needed the things of this earth because he found something of greater value. That pearl in the field that he went and sold everything to invest in that one pearl. Is that you as you're listening to this? Or are you trying to live in both worlds? Are you double-minded or or dipsukos is the Greek word? Are you two-spirited trying to live under the God of this world and the God of heaven? The spirit of this world that's at work in the Antichrist, right? As 1 John 2 talks about. Or the Holy Spirit that's at work in heaven. Which one do you is your greater prize and your greater joy? And if, if it is the things of heaven, let me just tell you, there will be a drastic reduction of the things of earth. That's just the process of heaven. Even in, in John 3.30, John the Baptist says that um, he must increase, but I must decrease. You see, you don't get to combine the two. As one increases, the other one decreases. That's just how it works. There's no way around that. That is a blueprint of heaven. You cannot be filled up with the things of this world and the things of heaven. It doesn't work that way. It's one or the other. And in fact, if you don't believe me, First John chapter 2, John says it like this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For the one who loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Did you catch that? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He says it very plainly, and I don't think we can get around that. If you truly have your treasure in heaven in the person of Jesus Christ and the glory of God, then the things of earth will decrease. You'll invest more in heaven. You'll begin storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thief does not break into steel. That'll be your treasure. But if your treasure is increasing on earth and that's what you're storing up, that's what you seem to be trying to, um, to get more of in this life, then let me just tell you, your treasure is not Jesus and you might be found wanting in the end. It's a very simple message, and hopefully you have ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit is saying to the churches. 
He says in verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Let me get, give you an understanding. The Jews had interpreted the scriptures of the Old Testament to say that um, when the Messiah would come, that he was going to deliver them from this continued oppression that they were finding from empire after empire, whether it was Babylon, whether it was Assyria, whether it was the Greeks, whether it was the Romes, whatever time and place in which the Christ was going to come, that he was going to set Jerusalem back up as the dominating kingdom and he would take his throne and he would rule and nobody would be able to overtake them. Now, this is what they thought would happen when the Christ came. That he was going to come in pomp and glory. That he was going to be a king like Saul who was head and shoulders above everybody. He was going to lead the people of Israel unto glory. And that they would have a physical kingdom set up for all of eternity. But let me just tell you, they were missing the boat. Because what Jesus did not fulfill in the, in the physical, he did in the spiritual. And as a result, because they were looking for the physical... They missed his coming. And this is what he's getting on here, is what he talks about in this next part. He says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive... Uh, excuse me. Sorry about that. To receive a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept, laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words. You wicked servant, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him, and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now this is an interesting parable that Jesus is trying to state, but we have to remember why is he telling them this parable. And I think it goes back into verses 7 and 11, in which he says back in verse 7, And when he saw it, they all grumbled. Right, So he's talking about these men who are grumbling at the fact that he's meeting with Zacchaeus. And then in verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So he tells them this parable about saying, look, I went, I received the kingdom, 
And, and, and that in and of itself is an interesting statement. It says, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So when he had received this kingdom, when the kingdom had basically been given to him, okay, he called ten servants and gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But the citizens of that kingdom, they hated him. And they said, we don't want this guy to rule over us. There's a distinction between those two, okay? The citizens which he gave the ten minas, I'm sorry, the uh, ten of his servants he gave ten minas, and then the citizens who were of that country. Two different, distinctive people. Groups of people, I should say. Now here's the deal of what I'm talking about, and we're going to get into it a little bit in the triumphal entry as he goes on. These, these ones that he's talking about here, these citizens that hated him, did, I think we can all understand that that's the Jewish people. That's the Jews, his own people, the citizens of this country. He went and received a kingdom, and these guys did not want him to rule over them. I think we all know that, that that's the Jews, right? Who are these servants? Well, I think the servants are those who are seeking to do the will of God. And he gives them something he didn't give to anyone else. He only gave the servants these minas. And he actually gave them something. Some people would argue and say then in verse 26 that, well, the guy really didn't get anything because people would look at this as say salvation. Let me just tell you, he did get something. He got a mina. Each one of them got a mina. And they were told to go and invest it. Invest it. And a lot of people would look at this as the health, wealth, prosperity of stewardship of saying, no, no, no. See, when God gives us money, we need to invest that money and make more money for ourselves. Um, no. That's, you're missing the point of what this whole thing is about. This is about, as Matthew 13, 11 talks about, of having the secrets of the kingdom of God revealed to you. Go read it. In fact, let's, I will go read it right now. Matthew 13, in verse 11. And then he actually follows it up in 12 and saying the exact same thing. But Matthew, in thirteen eleven he says this. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them... It has not been given, meaning to the citizens, to the Jews. It wasn't, it was hidden from them, right? He says, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Do you see the correlation? The whole concept of this entire thing is that he received a kingdom. And he gave these servants the ability to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. It has nothing to do with stewardship of actual physical money. If you're thinking that, you're missing the point of what Jesus is trying to state. The reality is, is the Jews hated him. They did not want him to reign because they thought that he was going to be coming with great pomp and circumstance and that he was going to rule and give them from their dominion of being underneath the thumb of Rome. And that this Christ was going to come and rule and make Israel the glory of the earth again. But that's not what Jesus was doing. Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom. A heavenly one. One that was not going to be shaken as Hebrews 12 tells us towards the end of 24 through 26. He says, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The kingdom we have received is a spiritual one. It is no longer about Israel and the physical territory of Israel. It is no longer about the physical temple or the physical priesthood or the physical sacrifices. Jesus has received a spiritual kingdom. And that is the one that we serve in. And he has given to us who come into him through the spirit... The ability to understand the secrets of the kingdom that he's given to us and that we're included in. 
So what happens? We know about these citizens who didn't want him to reign. Obviously, he didn't. He wasn't Lord of their life. Therefore, they never got included in anything, as he says in the end. But as for these enemies of mine, the citizens, the Jews, who did not want to receive me, who did not want me to rule over them, he did not want me to be the Lord of their life. They just wanted me to save them. He says, as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So we know, we know what happened to them. But what about these servants? What about these servants who did receive ten minas? And each one of them received a mina and was told to go and invest so that he might receive interest when he comes. We know the first one made ten minas more. And God said, okay, you have ten cities that you're going to rule over in the next life. The next one, your mina made five minas. Notice who possessed the mina. Both of them said, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. The next one, Lord, your mina has made five. And notice that in all of these, in the first one, the first two at least, it says, starts it off with Lord. What was the whole <coughs> issue with the citizens? They didn't want him to reign over them. He says, your mina has made five. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. He says, I didn't invest it. I just sat on it. Knowing the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, knowing grace, knowing what forgiveness was through the cross, knowing all these things that were given to me, I didn't do anything with it. I sat on it. I didn't feel like I had to. Did you know there's a lot of people who actually fit into this category and they would call themselves Christians? They understand what Christ has done for them. They understand their sin. They understand these things in basic ideologies of understanding their depravity. And they might even say that he's Lord of their life, but they don't actually relinquish anything to him. They received the mina. They received the ability to understand, but they never did anything with it. They simply sat on it and covered it up. And that was never how the light of God was supposed to be treated. And he goes on, he says, I was afraid of you. You're a severe man. It's yours anyways. What does it matter what I do? What did he say about that man? He says, take that mina away from that guy. And essentially what I get from that is um, he's not going to have a reward He's not going to get anything as, as a result of getting that mina. He's not going to have the reward. And he says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. If you invest in the kingdom, if you seek him, he will grow you in your knowledge. Here little, there little, as Isaiah says. You will increase in your understanding and knowledge of the kingdom of heaven and in the person of Jesus Christ. As you continue to press into him and seek after him, he will grow you. But those who don't, what you are given will be taken away. I believe that this goes into Hebrews chapter 5 when he talks about not living on milk and growing up into maturity. And then he gives a very, very severe warning in the next eight verses in chapter 6. 
of those who want to remain on milk or those who want to just kind of sit on what they've been given. They just want to stay as an infant, if you will. They just want to stay there. They don't want to... He says, you're running a really dangerous game right there. I've asked you to grow into maturity, to allow that mina that I've placed in your life to be manifest and to grow into maturity and produce something for my glory and for my benefit. See, it's not okay to say that you're a Christian and then just sit on what you received and never grow. That's not okay. And I think this parable has given us the understanding of this concept. And as well as what he's about to say, I'll get into it a little bit when I dissect the word Hosanna. He says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt. It says, Tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who went, I'm sorry, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying this colt? And, the, and they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The Matthew, you're going to see, it says the word Hosanna, and I'll, I'll say that in a second. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so here, Jesus is making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, much like what, it's actually an interesting thing, you go into 2 Samuel, I think it's chapters 15 through 20, you're going to find that David kind of exited Jerusalem in this exact way, even riding on a donkey. And here's Jesus coming in the same path in which David left, riding on a donkey. And it's the return of that lineage of David, the root of Jesse, going on. It talks about it where it says that he was going to be in the lineage of David, the Messiah, the Christ. And here he is coming into Jerusalem on this donkey. It's why he had need of this donkey. It wasn't because Jesus was tired and he needed a donkey to ride in. It was he needed to fulfill what was written about him. And so he comes in. And what's the response that he gets? The response is, is that all of his disciples had gathered, and I don't know what that number was going to be, but what I do know is that all of his disciples had gathered and they were all saying, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. It's a prophecy. You look at Zechariah 9.9 that says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, this is all prophecy, but I want us to look at it more of a practical sense of what's going on here. Because here are these people that had heard of Christ, they were considered disciples. And it even says in, in um, uh, man, now it's drawn a blank, but when he fed the 5,000, uh, John 6.66 actually is where it says it. 
he, he you put the story together and it's, it shows that there were thousands of people who were considered his disciples. And he fed them. And then he gave them truths that were very difficult for them to grasp and to understand. And here's what it says in verse 66 of John, verse 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Thousands. I don't know how many disciples were here. I don't know what this scene looked like. There could have been 50. There could have been 500. There could have been 2,000. I have no idea. What I do know is that these were people who were expecting the Christ to come in and reign and to reestablish Israel as the dominant empire in the world and to take them out from being under the thumb of Rome. And so now I'm going to kind of do a spoiler alert for any of you who are listening to this and fast forward a little while from this. Jesus standing before Pilate. The authority of Rome, and he's bloodied, he's been imprisoned, he's in chains, he'd already been sent off to Herod, and he's been brought back, ridiculed, shamed, mocked, beaten even, and he's standing there in chains. This is the Christ, the one who is supposed to redeem Israel, the one who is supposed to establish the kingdom, who is supposed to take the throne. And pull us out from under the thumb of Rome. Because for 500, 600 years, the Israelites, um, the Jews, had been under essentially the thumb of other empires. Whether it's Babylon, whether it's Assyria, whether it's the Greeks, whether it's Rome. They thought that the Christ was going to come, the Messiah was going to deliver them from all of that and establish Israel again. But they missed it. So here they are, they're saying Hosanna. Which is, it's a, if you look at the Hebrew, it's, Hoshiana. It's save, we beseech thee. It's something of adoration, it's something of acclamation, it's something which they're basically saying, you are coming to save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you are coming to save us. Praise God, the deliverer has finally come like Moses when he delivered the people from Egypt. You're coming to save us and to take us out of Egypt, to take us out of the thumb of Rome. You're here to save us. And many of his disciples were proclaiming this as he was coming in, mounted on a donkey. Your king is coming to save you. But what they didn't realize is that it wasn't a kingdom he was going to establish on earth, but one he was going to establish in heaven. He was going to save them from their sins, not from the deliverance, not in a deliverance from Rome. And so here these disciples are praising his name when they felt like they were going to get what they wanted from him. But here's Jesus standing before Pilate, the authority of Rome. Beaten, shamed, mocked, ridiculed, and standing trial. In chains before all the people. And I don't know what the the percentages would have been or what the numbers would have been, but I'd be willing to guarantee you and bet you that there's some of the same people who are crying out Hosanna because they thought he was coming to save them were the same ones who were shouting, crucify him. And while you might look at that and be like, how dare they? Let me ask you in your life, how many times do you do that? How many times is it when you think Jesus is going to give you what you want? 
that you praise his name, you bless him, you bless him for all those quote-unquote blessings that you get. But when they're taken away, when things don't work out the way that you want, when maybe things, maybe a... Maybe, maybe some trials happen. Maybe just some really difficult situations happen. And you thought you were going to get to um, see your child live all the way until he was a ripe old age. And you were going to die before him. But then you had to see your child die in your arms. And I pray that that doesn't happen. But if it does, how many of you are still blessing the name of Christ? And how many of you are... Saying, crucify him because he didn't give me what I wanted. That might be an extreme example. And I pray that it never happens. But here's the reality is, in our selfishness, we are prone and capable of doing some very damaging things to the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ. And one of them is, is that when we choose to view things through our own lens and through the selfishness of who we are, at the core in our flesh. And we oftentimes will praise God when He does things that we want Him to do in our life. But as soon as things don't work out, man, our tune changes and we start singing different songs. And I think for some of these people, Hosanna, they were crying out, Save us. Our Savior has come. Salvation has come. And we are giving you adoration. But as soon as they saw that same man in chains, Man, they started shouting to crucify him because they said, you're no different from any of the other guys. You can't deliver us from Rome. Rome's still got authority over you. Look at it. They're still controlling you. But they didn't realize that Jesus wasn't coming to establish an earthly kingdom. He wasn't coming to reestablish Israel. He was coming to establish the heavenly Jerusalem, the church, the temple of God. And the spiritual kingdom that cannot be shaken because it's built on better promises. And it's nothing earthly. That's why it says, look, the devil can do whatever he wants to to our earthly bodies. Mankind can do whatever he wants to, but you can't take away the kingdom of God in us because it's something spiritual. They could destroy the temple in Jerusalem. They could have dominion over them. But they can't over us. As the church of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, we've come to Mount Zion, not, not, not Mount Sinai. We've come to a heavenly abode. And that's our position. And that's our kingdom in the person of Jesus Christ. They didn't get it. Because they were seeing things through the physical lens. And let me just tell you, if you're reading things through the physical lens, you're going back to the Old Testament, and you're reading the Feast of Booths, and you're reading about the Sabbath, and you're reading about all these various things, and you're reading through a physical lens that hasn't had it awakened to a spiritual sense and understanding, as 1 Corinthians 2 talks on, let me just tell you, you're going to get things wrong. You're not going to understand what all those things were actually pointing to. And the kingdom has now been manifested in the glory of Jesus Christ. And so understanding this, I want us to continue going on. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. And I, it makes me think of in Luke 13, I think it's 34 through 35, when Jesus, it says, essentially he, let me just read it real quick. In verse 34, 
He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. I see the, the anguish and the sadness that is in Jesus' heart as he looks over Jerusalem and he sees how much he invested and poured out into them. And yet they were unwilling to repent. They were unwilling to let them reign, let him reign over them. And he weeps over the city. And he says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that, are ma- that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Because they only saw things through the physical and what they wanted. They weren't seeing things in the spiritual realm. And it was hidden from them. He says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade. And I can just imagine Jesus probably saying this with his tears in his eyes as he's weeping over Jerusalem. Because I believe his heart still loves them. They might be forsaken. They might no longer be considered his people. And they are now outside the commonwealth of what's been afforded to us in Christ. They are no longer his people. Israel is no longer his territory. But that doesn't mean that he loves them less. That doesn't mean that he doesn't want them to be with them. I think Romans 11 makes that clear. God wants them to be included in the family of God. But it will only come through Jesus Christ. So if they do not repent and give honor to Christ as, uh, to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, then they do not get in. Their house has been forsaken. Jesus declared it himself. Their house was forsaken. And even though he wanted to gather them, even though he wanted, they were not willing. And now Jesus is there and he's weeping over them. He says, I wanted to bring you in, but you were not willing. He says, guys, there's going to come days that are going to come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on, others, on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The enemy is going to have his way with you. And I think there's a spiritual representation here just as much as a physical. Did this get fulfilled? Absolutely it did. But is there a spiritual fulfillment that if you don't give glory to Christ, if you don't honor Him and you don't um, submit to Him, even after being a Christian, that the devil's going to come after you seeking to still kill and destroy anyone whom he can devour, as 1 Peter 5 talks about? He's going to come after you. And if you're not abiding in Christ, if He is not on the throne of your life, then to varying degrees... He will seek to destroy you. He goes on, he says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. By the way, this is the second time, if you want to know the first time, the beginning of his ministry in John 2.17, it talks about the exact same concept. So in the beginning of his ministry, he did this, and now in the second, at the end of his ministry, he's doing this again. He began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. In in short, guys, this is just simply a concept that Jesus is looking at the temple and he says, Guys, my temple is supposed to be a house of prayer. It's supposed to be holy. And you're tainting it. And the way they were doing it was 
they were um, not allowing people, especially poor people, to come in and say that their sacrifices were acceptable. And so they would raise up their own sacrifices, their own livestock that was there, and said you had to buy an official um, sacrifice from the temple. And they would pay top dollar for it. They would make them pay top dollar, so they're profiting off of the people. Man, there's a whole lot of that going on today too. A lot of pastors who are profiting off the people. Let me just tell you, Jesus doesn't like it. Zeal for his house consumes freely you were given, so freely you give. Pastors who are out there who are making a very wealthy lifestyle for themselves off of preaching the word of God, let me just tell you, Jesus will come after you. He will drive things out and he will make your life difficult in many ways. And if he doesn't on this life, he will in the next. You will give an account for it. Zeal for his house consumes him. And so let me ask you this. Does zeal for his house consume you? Because if you know that his house is the church, we are the temple of God. We are the dwelling place of God's spirit. We are his house. Does zeal for his house consume you? His church? You know, I, I, I hear a lot of times people um, who are so anxious to go to Israel, so anxious to learn ways of the Torah, and to, so anxious you know, or, or eager to, to side with the Jews because they think that they're God's people and they think Israel is God's land and they think, you know, and they miss it. People are so zealous for the Jews, but when it comes to church, people miss it. Let me just tell you, his house is no longer the Jews. We are his house in Christ. Christ is faithful over God's house, as Hebrews 3, 6 talks on. And we are his house if we keep our confidence firm to the end. We are the family of God. The church is. It's not the Jews. And people have this understanding and they're so passionate about the Jewish race, the Jewish people in Israel. But when it comes to the church, people who are believers, who are the body of Christ, it's kind of like, meh. Let me just tell you, if Jesus were to come today and he were to return, I think he'd be doing very similar things to people who are so in love with the Jews and so... Um, zealous for them but they're missing it with the church because the church is his beloved the church is the temple and the dwelling place of God Almighty the church is where God is going to make his claim because that is his people do good to all but especially the household of faith Galatians 6, 9 and 10 so we got to make sure guys that we understand things correctly Jesus did this. This was the second time in his ministry that he had done it. And it's written about him that zeal for his house consumes him. Does the zeal for his house consume you? His house is the church. It's not Israel. It's not the Jews. Are you zealous for the church? Are you seeking to be one with the church in the same way that Jesus and the Father are perfectly one? He says, I pray that the people who believe in me would be perfectly one. In the same way. Do you have a heart for his church? Because let me just tell you. In 1 John 3. I think it's in 16 and 17. 
it might be in 15, but somewhere in that range, he says, this is how you can know that you've passed from death to life and how you love the brothers. If you don't have a zeal for his church, if you don't love his church, if you don't consider her beloved, and you don't have a zeal for her, I question if you've passed from death to life. Because the word of God questions it. If you're prioritizing the Jewish people, which I know Christians who prioritize the Jewish people and they hold them up higher than they even do the church. If you prioritize them over the church, let me just tell you, you're in sin. And that might sound harsh to you, but it's the reality. The body of Christ, as you treat her, you treat the head. And that's biblical. And if the Jews do not have the spirit of Christ, then they don't belong to him. Romans 8, 9. So we're talking about people who are Jews or Greeks. Because in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's Christians. And if you treat Christians as inferior or as lesser than people who are unbelievers, who are not in Christ, let me just tell you, it ain't going to go well with you. Because Jesus has a zeal for his house. And his house now in the new covenant is the church. So we would do well to make sure that we honor her. We would do well to make sure that we consider her beloved. And that we would seek to also love her enough to drive out any of the things in her that makes her impure. And so I hope you guys understand this message, that you accept this message, you hear this message, and you apply it. Y'all be blessed.